Amen. What a privilege it is to be able to just listen to God's word. Thank you for those who read to us today. What a gift that is to us today to speak to us um, God's word. I want to send, uh, I was asked to send greetings from the Wilmington Church, uh, Grace City Church, one of our sister churches, just saying thank you to you all, and they're praying for you. I was up there serving last week, and they wanted to make sure they knew that they appreciate Risen Hope Church and wanted to send their greetings to you as well. So I am sharing those with you now. Now, in the world of budgets and finances, I know I just lost half of you right there, didn't I? In the world of budgets and finances, experts and people who are really good at this will stress the importance of having goals. And not just having goals, but prioritizing them, like making them actually matter. In Dave Ramsey's financial peace classes, he actually shows a video to illustrate this point of a gazelle that is fervently fleeing from this predator that's trying to kill it. And the gazelle is, is, is evading intensely, and the gazelle gets away. And Dave then speaks of the need to have gazelle intensity in going after your financial goals. And in this video, the gazelle's only goal was survival. And all other goals took a back seat at that point in time. Now, as we've studied and read the book of Ephesians over these past few months, we see a similar charge from God in this book. Ephesians clearly tells us the ultimate goal of life, the ultimate goal of all things, and how that should play out in our day-to-day -day life. There's a very good reason that we preach a passage at a time um, expositorily through a book. We don't want to skip verses. We don't want to be like, that's really hard to understand. Let's just move past that. We do this a passage at a time, and admittedly, there are times when there are single verses that we often think, man, I wish we had an entire month of messages just to spend on this one verse. God's Word is rich. It is deep. However, these verses and these passages that we have been speaking on, they don't stand on their own like post-it notes on a refrigerator or like a fortune cookie you open up and you, this is the truth that you have today. They're in the greater context of the entire book of Ephesians. And there's one cohesive overarching theme that we've tried to keep central during this series as we preach on these messages. So today, as we finish our series on Ephesians, we're going to revisit the entire book. We're going to make sure that we do not miss this overarching message. That which Paul says is the ultimate goal or the ultimate priority of all of our life, the primary thing that is worthy of our gazelle intensity. Today, we're going to see that the glory of God's grace in Christ must be known, experienced, and walked out in every aspect of life. The glory of God's grace in Christ must be known, experienced, and walked out in every aspect of life. So let's explore this overarching theme in two pieces. The first piece is this. The glory of God's grace in Christ must be known and experienced. So Paul starts his letter to the Ephesian church by addressing them as those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. They're believers. He's not writing to people who haven't, haven't put their faith in Christ. He's writing to believers, faithful servants. 
And he then starts this massively long sentence in verses 3 through 14 that declares the truth about this amazing salvation that Christ has accomplished for believers. He says, God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He's not withheld any spiritual blessing from those he has redeemed. He continues on describing this extravagant blessing. He chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy before him. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as heirs. He's redeemed us through his sacrifice, forgiven our trespasses, lavished his grace on us. He's made known his will to unite all things in him. He says that's his purpose. He's given us an inheritance that is sealed and guaranteed with the Holy Spirit And he says three times during this whole massive sentence the reason for all of this. It's all to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then Paul starts out this letter laying out this wonderful theology that God has purposed to save a people and bless them. Why? Because it displays his glory. It shows the beauty the value, the greatness of Christ in his grace to his children. Then in verses 15 to 23 of chapter 1, he shifts from declaring this doctrine to a prayer, praying that the believers in Ephesus would grow in their knowing and their experiencing of these truths. He says he's thankful for them because he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for all of the saints. And then he prays that they would grow in their knowing of Christ. More specifically, he prays that the Holy Spirit would enlighten the eyes of their hearts in the knowledge of God. That they would know three things. What is the hope he's called them to? What is the riches of God's inheritance in the saints, in the church? And a third one, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, toward the church? The power that resurrected Christ, that enthroned him above every name that there is as victorious king with his neck or with his foot on the neck of his defeated foe. Do you remember that picture? Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, not the eyes of their head, not the eyes of their mind. And why does he say that? He says that because the heart is where our affections are. Paul says, I don't want you to just have an intellectual knowing of what God has done for you. I mean, let's be real. Satan himself knows what God has done. Paul says, I want you to know in your affections. He says, I'm praying that you experience these gospel realities more and more and more and more and more in your life as you are filled in every way with him who fills everything. Verse 23. And then chapter 2, Paul shifts back to theology. He's expounding more on the means and the effects of this amazing salvation that is all to the praise of his glory. In verses 1 through 10, Paul explains the depravity of man's sin, leaving man spiritually dead, and how God as a gift has given grace to rescue hopeless individuals. And verse 7 tells us why we've been made alive with Christ and seated with him. Verse 7 says this, chapter 2, says, So that in the coming ages he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
God is redeeming sinners. He's securing joy for his children because the generous gift of his grace displays his kindness and his glory. Verse 9 tells us man did not earn this that he could boast about it. God alone has done this to display his glory to the world. God has rescued hopeless, helpless sinners, many of us in this room, to show the world how magnificent he is. And then in verses 11 to 22, he proceeds to tell us that this vertical reconciliation of man to God being reconciled through Christ, that's not the only thing that Christ accomplished. In addition, God has grafted Gentiles into the promises of Israel and is reconciling man to man, horizontal reconciliation. Gentiles are redeemed by the same blood and grace as Israel. Christ's work has united all believers in himself. Remember Ephesians 1, 9 to 10, where it stated that God's will was what? It was to unite all things in Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Vertical reconciliation, horizontal reconciliation, salvation and unity, all to display the glory of Christ in his people to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul doesn't say that this is always going to look like unicorns and rainbows, though. He continues in chapter 3, and he talks about how his imprisonment, his being in chains, is for the glory of God. How his ministry is for the glory of God. And he goes on to say in verses 9 and 10 in chapter 3 that God's mysterious plan is that through the church, get this, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to authorities in the cosmic realms and that the eternal purpose of this was realized in Jesus Christ. Through the church, do you see the theme continuing God is displaying his glory. He's executing his godness in plain sight of all the world and the heavens. Christ has and is accomplishing a salvation that rescues, redeems, blesses, and empowers his church. And its ultimate goal is to shine the splendor and magnificence of his unmatched glory. He's chosen to lavish mercy and grace on undeserving, unworthy people, to reconcile them to himself and to each other, to bless and fill them completely because it demonstrates how truly wonderful and awesome he is, not how truly and wonderful awesome we are. Then in verses 14 to 21 of chapter 3, Paul shifts back to prayer. He shifts back and he prays that the Ephesians church would experience Experience the realities of this, not just simply be aware of it. He prays that they would be strengthened by the Spirit and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that the glory of Christ would be seen in the church. Are you hearing the theme? These first three chapters of Ephesians repeatedly declare that Christ's glory as displayed in the church is the ultimate goal of his plan for everything. And that the glory of God's grace in Christ is both to be known and experienced. Paul has spoken doctrinal truth. He did this twice where he laid out doctrinal truth 
about knowing something and then prayed they would experience it. And then he did it again in chapter 2 in the beginning of 3 and then prayed that they would experience this. He wants them to experience more and more and more these truths through the Holy Spirit who it says fills us with Christ in every way. And all of this is to shine bright the glory of the Savior. Are you tempted to be unbalanced in your knowing in your experiencing. Do you have a tendency to know? You study God's word. You're intellectually sharp on doctrine and ready to take on a, a, a theological argument with anybody that would dare challenge. But you experience very little of these truths actually playing out in your daily life. Do you faithfully read the Bible but pray very little for your day to be filled with the reality of what you've read? Do you apply what you know to be true? Or are you maybe on the opposite end of that spectrum? Do you desire and strive to experience God's presence in your life? You really, really want that, but you neglect to grow in your knowledge of God through reading his word. Do you pray to know God more, but rarely study and meditate on the revelation of himself that he's given to us in his word? Do you go through life Fasting from the feast of fellowship with God himself. And then you're perplexed. Why am I spiritually weak and immature? Hear this. Doctrine without application is just information. It's just information. Application without doctrine will cause you to be weak and ineffective at best and heretical and lost at worst. God has prescribed spiritual disciplines to us so we can grow in our knowing and experiencing relationship with God himself. We've been saved to a person, not a religion. Paul makes clear that God has saved us to display his glory by knowing him more and experiencing him more. And he calls us to walk this out in a manner worthy of that calling. Which brings us to the other half of this overarching theme of Ephesians. And that's this. The glory of God's grace in Christ must be walked out in every aspect of life. Chapters 4 through 6 take the truths and doctrines that were in chapters 1 through 3 and gets much more granular with what it looks like to experience this and walk in God's grace in everyday life. Chapter 4 begins with that charge to walk in a manner worthy. Now this manner is described there. Listen to these descriptors. It's described as being full of humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, love, peace, and unity. Let me just pause and state the obvious. This is so countercultural to the society we live in today. Humility and gentleness, they're seen as weakness. And who has time for patience and forbearance? I mean, let's get serious. I'm entitled to it now, and you need to give it to me. That's how our culture is so often. And love, peace, and unity, it seems our nation is more polarized than it has ever been. And the weapons most wielded are gossip, slander, hate, lies, and self-righteous generalizations of the evils of those who are not us. 
Rugged individualism is what is taught in our schools. It's what's fed to us in our social media feeds, in our movies, in our TV shows. Our kids and us are bombarded by messages saying, you are the most important thing in your world. You determine who you are. You are the master of your destiny. Your glory is what matters most, unless, of course, it impedes on my glory. And let's not be too self-righteous about this. The church is not immune to this. We see it play out in our marriages, in our parenting, our relationships with others, believers and non-believers, and quite frankly, it does not display the glory of Christ in the church. We can live as if the glory of Christ is not the primary goal of our lives, but rather an accessory, uh, an acceptable bolt-on to our ambitions and goals. Ephesians 4 through 6 instructs us how to walk differently than that. How to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, a life to the praise of the glory of his grace in Christ. We've seen it already, but chapter 4 dives deeper into the community aspect of our Christian walk. In fact, most of the yous in Ephesians are not singular, they're plural. It's so easy to see the word you in the Bible. We just assume it means me, singular. Most of the yous in Ephesians are talking plural to the church. We see there are offices given to the church to help teach and instruct so that we may grow up. And as verse 14 of chapter 4 says, that we're not tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. It then says we're to speak the truth in love or we're to truth in love together. And we grow up into Christ when we do that, it says. Each part of the body working together to build itself up in love. See, Lone Ranger Christianity, it's not biblical. It's not what the Bible says Christianity looks like. It's why we covenant together in membership here at Risen Hope Church. We say publicly, when we do that. We're making a commitment to each other. We're doing this together. You can count on me. I am joining with you in mutual accountability, with mutual investment in God's kingdom and each other's life to the praise of his glory. Paul says living like this will result in stability and maturity for the believer. You want stability in your life? You want more spiritual maturity in your life? You do that by living a life for the glory of God in the context of his people. Then in verses 17 through 32 of chapter 4, Paul contrasts the darkened walk of the Gentiles. He's going to flesh out what he's talking about. Here's how the Gentiles walked. Here's how the Christ follower walks. He says, don't walk in the darkened alienated, ignorant way that gives oneself to, quote, every kind of impurity. He says, don't do that. That's the old corrupt self and needs to be put off. Instead, we're to put on the new self, being renewed in our minds and living righteously and holy, walking as Christ has loved us. He then lists a slew of things that all relate to how we relate to one another because, as verse 25 says, we are members of one another. God has a way for his reconciled, united people to walk that displays his glory. 
We forsake corrupting talk and we build each other up instead. We are kind and forgiving because that's how Christ has treated us. He continues in chapter 5 to tell us to imitate God, to walk like Him. He gives examples of what it's like to walk in the immorality of darkness and how we should walk differently because we are light. Not just we're walking in the light. We are light. We are shining the glory of the Savior. Remember the ultimate goal, to display His glory. And then continuing on in verses 15 to 20, Paul exhorts the believers to walk wise, spirit-filled and spirit-controlled lives. Lives that give thanks for everything, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul gets very specific in Ephesians 5.22 to 6.9 in three very vital areas of what this godly submission looks like in our marriages, in our parenting, and in our work. And he especially points out that the husband-wife relationship is a picture of Christ in the church. Do you get it? God has a plan to unite all things into Christ, and it's all to display his glory in his people. And then he's created this institution of marriage that says, let me give you a special picture of what that looks like. Our marriages are intended to display the glory of Christ in the church. John Piper says that when we live like these passages say, we are displaying the supreme worth of Christ in all of our relationships. Do you regularly consider whether or not how you're relating to your spouse, how you're relating to your friends, your children, your parents, your boss, your employees, does that display the supreme worth of Christ in your life? Do you have gazelle intensity regarding your actions and thoughts in your relationships because the display of God's glory is intended in every single interaction? In Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, Paul then explains that, listen, there's an enemy who's actively opposing the display of God's glorious grace in Christ. And that enemy is actively fighting God's children to thwart their plans to walk in this worthy manner. But God has equipped the believer with defensive and offensive elements to protect us and advance the purpose of God in Christ. And we are called to having done all to stand firm. When the battle's over, we are standing. We must fight. It's not optional. Samuel taught us that. There's no citizens. We're all soldiers in this. But we fight as those whose victory is sure because Christ has dealt the deciding blow through his death and through his resurrection. We fight not hoping to win. We fight appropriating the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors in all things. And the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church, Jesus said. Paul closes his letter in verses 21 to 24 by emphasizing a couple of things. First, he tells them of this beloved brother, Tychicus, who was most likely known by the Ephesians church. Tychicus traveled with Paul um, very often during his journeys He's the one delivering this letter to the church in Ephesians. It's been entrusted to him. And Paul says, Tychicus is coming so that they may know how Paul is doing and what he is doing, and that Tychicus may encourage their hearts with that. See, Paul's living out his instructions. 
He's seeking to be transparent in his life and in his heart. He's not just what he is doing, but how he is doing. And Paul knows this type of relating will encourage the hearts of the Ephesian believers. See, Paul's been talking through this whole book about the corporate communal aspect of living out this amazing salvation and how that gives glory to Christ. Do you have people in your life who know all that you are doing? That know how you are doing? This is the main reason we have community groups at Risen Hope. This type of God-honoring living, which Ephesians says is essential for unity and growth, it's really hard to do if you're only attending a weekly service or if you're not engaging with other believers in a meaningful, deep fellowship type of way. But this is a two-way street. You may be sitting here thanking God for his grace in your life, that you're, you're well-connected, you're benefiting from that blessing of godly fellowship and community. Praise God if that's the case. That is a gift and a kindness of the Lord. Let me also ask, are you seeking to bring in those that are on the fringe, that aren't experiencing that right now? Are you looking for those struggling on the outside and inviting them to the lavishly rich life of community in Christ? Let's be people who don't remain on the fringe, and let's be people who seek out those to pull in who are on the fringe. And finally, Paul ends by referring back to the sub-themes that are in this letter. He talks about peace and the reconciliation that we have with each other, love that's been coupled with faith and grace. Paul actually ends every single one of his letters with some form of grace be with you. Every single one of them. But Ephesians is the only place he puts a descriptor or a qualifier on it. Let's look at Ephesians 6, 24. He says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Paul once again is reminding the Ephesians that this amazing salvation is something that is just not intended to be merely known of, but rather to be experienced, lived out, walked out in a manner worthy of the calling with love incorruptible. One commentator says that the idea of this is that the believer's love for Jesus is to be pure, not corrupted with wrong motives or secret disloyalties. The word translated incorruptible also carries the same meaning as immortal. In fact, some translations translate this verse with an undying love. It's a love that's forever. It doesn't dissipate. Paul's saying that those who persevere in their love of Christ without secret disloyalties or wrong motives will have grace. The book of Ephesians tells us the glory of God's grace in Christ must be known, experienced, and walked out in every aspect of life. Are you growing in both your understanding and your experience of gospel realities? Or are you coasting along and have been okay with that? Are you walking out every aspect of your life in light of these truths? Let me ask, what would your life look like if you lived every moment for the glory 
of Christ. Would anything be different than it is right now? Would you relate to your family in the same way? Your neighbors, your coworkers? Would your posts on social media look any different? Would there be any change in how you spend your time or how you spend your money? And are you seeking to live for the glory of Christ in the context of community as God instructed it to be done? Robbie, can you come on up, please? As we close, I thought it might be helpful to see how the Ephesian church did in this. How, how did they do? The book of Revelation actually gives us some specific insight into the life of the Ephesian church. In this section of Revelation, Christ himself, he's addressing seven different churches directly. And in Revelation 2, 1 through 7, here's what he says. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It seems the, church was, the Ephesian church was doing very well at many things, and they're commended for those here. But the Lord calls them out on their loss of love. Paul commended them in Ephesians 1, remember we already mentioned it, of their love for all the saints. And then in Ephesians 6, he talks about grace be with you all, uniquely tells the Ephesians, those who love the Lord Jesus with a love incorruptible. And the Lord says in Revelation 2, 4, you've abandoned that love. God reminds them that knowing and doing the right things is not enough. How you do them is important and essential. Let's be a church that displays the glory of Christ and his grace, not just in what we know about him, not just even in what we do for him, but how we do it, how we interact with each other, how we obey him, with love incorruptible. May the glory of Christ be our ultimate and primary goal. May we pursue it with gazelle intensity because he who called us is worthy and faithful to do it in his people. Let's pray and then we're gonna stand and sing. Father, what an amazing, magnificent salvation. Work that you have done for hopeless helpless people who couldn't fix themselves up enough, who couldn't merit their own salvation, who were dead, that you have made alive 
You have made us in Christ. Seated us with him in the heavenly places. Filled us completely, completely, all, all to display your glory, Lord. Because you are spectacular. You are majestic. You are beyond what words can describe. Your glory is unmatched, unchallenged, superior to all. Lord, we pray that you would help us in the areas where we're not there yet, where we are falling short, where we are tempted to set the primary goal of your glory to the side because we really would rather do this right now. Lord, may we be a people where your glory is displayed and we we don't have confidence in ourselves, Lord, we have confidence in you to accomplish this. You said in Philippians 1, 6, you are faithful to complete the work that you've started in us, Lord. So, Lord, we ask again to have your way with us. Fill us fresh with your spirit that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Help us to put off the things we need to put off, Lord. Help us to put on the things that we need to put on. And having done all, stand firm because you have accomplished it and are accomplishing it in us, Lord. We're so grateful for you, Lord. Be glorified in our very lives, not just our words. Be glorified, Lord. Be made much of your beauty, your value, and greatness. We ask this in your name.